Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. It is good to be back with you. We had a great trip. It's the first time in five years, I think we figured out, that all four of us had been on a trip together. And so we had a good time, but we are glad to be back. And I know some of you traveled over the fall break as well. We are starting a new series this morning. And to start it, I will go back to my childhood when I was growing up. And admittedly, that has been many years ago now. We were sort of at the beginning of the you-can-do-anything-you-want-to-do or be-anything-you-want-to-be philosophy or mentality of life. Now, what that meant when I was growing up was that you had endless opportunities in front of you. If you worked hard, applied yourself, and uh, stuck with it, then you could become or achieve whatever it is you wanted. Usually, that applied to a career. In other words, you could be a a professional athlete if that's what you wanted to be. You could be a fireman or a politician. You could be a millionaire. You could be whatever it is you wanted to be. It was often even said that you could become the president of the United States. Though, of course, that certainly does not apply to all of us, nor would I even want that particular job. This mentality led to many advancements in the careers of women, so that jobs that were primarily in the past reserved for men became open for men and women, resulting in then the push for equal pay for equal work, which, of, which is, of course, a good thing. And in many cases, it led to the shattering of what was called the glass ceiling, both for women and for m- minorities, which was another good result. But now the idea that you can be whatever you want to be, has morphed into something that is not so good. The phrase, and others like it, no longer means that you can pursue whatever career you want to pursue with the assurance of equal opportunity based on your ability. Now the idea seems to be that you can declare yourself to be whatever you want to be, and it is so. I am not talking about George Costanza, constantly calling himself an architect when in fact he was not. Now, I know I said no more Seinfeld references this year, but Seinfeld was in town Friday night, and so I thought about it. I'm talking about, though, much more fundamental things than what career we might choose to be. For example, the gender issue is front and center these days, resulting in constant news If you follow the headlines, you know you can't go a week without reading another story about uh, the gender issue, whether it be in our, uh, whether it be in churches or schools or government or simply in our society in general. What was never thought of when I was growing up is now a battle that is major in our day. I did a quick Google search and found a list of 16 separate genders. And that was published back in July. Chances are they've added to that number since then. I've been told on several occasions that now there are students identifying as animals in school. 
and expecting to be treated as such. I haven't personally witnessed that or seen it, but it is a trend, I am told, and it is certainly not a stretch when we conclude that we can be whatever we want to be. The opportunities are now limited only by our own imagination. But on top of this, and equally as dangerous, if not more so, is the push for acceptance of any and all self-identifications. In other words, not only do you have the freedom to choose whatever it is you want to be, whether that's your sexuality or your gender or even your species, not only do you have the freedom to choose that, we are told, but everyone else must accept your choice as valid or they are the ones that, that are in the wrong. The push to normalize and accept everything is making huge and swift inroads in our society. The Washington Post this past week picked up a story out of Virginia that concerned a bill that a Northern Virginia legislator intended to introduce to uh, the legislature in Virginia, something she had done two years ago with very little fanfare nor publicity, but now she is reintroducing that bill. And since the Washington Post picked up the article, it is now gaining some traction and some conversation. The bill would, would do this. It would, if becoming law, it would expand the definition of child abuse to include inflicting physical or mental injury on children due to their gender identity or sexual orientation. She states that the bill would help protect LGBTQ children from their parents and guardians who are not affirming of their child's sexual orientation or gender identity. Did you catch that? She is seeking to protect children from their parents when it comes to sexual identification or gender identity. But it actually goes a step further. If this bill were to become law, Virginia parents could face a felony or misdemeanor charge if they do not affirm their child's orientation or gender identity. Parents could be held criminally liable because if they do not affirm, it is a form of hate, and hate is easily translated legally into a form of abuse. I think many of us are left wondering, where in the world did we go wrong? How did we get to where we are today? How did we come to the place where Anybody and everybody could self-assert whoever they want to be or what they want to be and expect everyone else to merely accept it. Well, I certainly don't have all of the answers, but I do think the Bible has many of them. And frankly, I think the fact that as a nation we have ignored the revelation of God does in fact go a long way in explaining where we are today. A place of confusion about the rather simple question who am I? Well, this new series I'm calling Divine Design, as you see from the front of your bulletin, because this is not going to be a series about the fact that you can be whatever you want to be. This is not going to be a series that encourages you in your career path to to seek whatever career you want to seek. This is not going to be a series about our own self-declarations that we can declare ourselves or identify ourselves as anything we want to be. Rather, this is going to be a series where God declares 
who we are. Now, in saying that, I want to specify that I'm going to be talking primarily over the next six weeks about believers. In other words, these six sermons are going to talk about who we are in Christ. But that does not leave aside those who are currently unbelievers because, as we saw in our last series, the proclamation of the gospel goes out to all. So if you are not currently in Christ, the invitation is for you to become one with Christ and be in Christ. And then you can be what God intended for you to be. Today we start at the beginning, the book of Genesis, a word that means beginning. And we are in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 this morning. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. As we see in this first sermon that by divine design, you are an image bearer. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, you will recognize this as the initial account of the creation of mankind. If you go further in Genesis, in the next couple of chapters, you will see a more specific uh, nature of that occurrence. Now, as I've said in other settings, someone who creates something, an artist, for an example, has the, the right, has the ability to name and declare what it is he or she is creating. And that certainly is the case with God as well, who is the ultimate creator. Now, we tend to identify ourselves in relation to what we do or who we know. It's why one of the first questions we ask someone when we first meet them is, what do you do for a living? Because we know a person's career is so tied to who they are that it identifies for us something about them. So we can be a plumber, a teacher, a policeman, an accountant, a nurse, and on and on it goes. And some careers are so tied to the individual that even outside of the nine to five work week, we still call them that. We always call a doctor a doctor. We tend to call a coach a coach. And sadly, we tend to call a preacher a preacher. We also identify uh, with who we are based on our relationships. In other words, to some people, I am Tracy's husband. And she is Alan's wife, or if we combine these two things, she is merely the preacher's wife. Some, to some people, I am Jacob and Lauren's dad. That means they identify me based on my relationships. But here in our text, we are told that there is a far more important identity than any of those things. The Bible begins by telling us that we are created in God's image. This is our fundamental identity. This is who we were designed by God to be. Though we'll see shortly that that has been altered. Now, in spite of what I said a moment ago, <clears throat> this aspect and the second point this morning, 
does apply to all people. Every single person is created in God's image without exception. This is not reserved for the believer. This is the original design of creation that we all bear the image of God. Theologically, we sometimes call this the Imago Dei. So if you want to impress your friends that you know a couple of Latin words, you can use that phrase to, to talk to them about the image of God. The creation, the, this creation in the image of God sets us apart from all other creatures. In spite of what some say in our day, mankind is not just another animal along with the others that we see around us chiefly because we alone have the distinctive mark of being made in the image of God. We also see this distinction in our text by the fact that mankind is told to rule over all of the other animals. We are to rule over them because we are made in the image of God. Now, if you'll notice in our text, actually the verses prior to our text, there is a recurring phrase in verses 24 and 25. About five times, at least, we see the phrase, according to their kind, or some variation thereof. The various animals were created according to their species. But this distinction is not made when it comes to mankind in the verses that we read. Instead, we are all one species created in the image of God. Which, by the way, and this is an important distinction... This rules out any idea that certain people are inherently superior to others or inferior to others. This is yet another topic that history has taught us has not been learned well from the creation story. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Frankly, that's not an easy question to answer as much theological debate through the years has sought to answer that very question. And since I don't have the depth of mind, and you don't have the depth of patience, we're going to try to keep it simple. Multiple ideas come to mind when we think of the word image. Famous people sometimes have their image carved into stone or marble. We see this all over the world as a way to commemorate who they were and what they accomplished. I was able to see the statue of the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli when we were in Zurich last week. But of course, it's, it's not really him, it's just a, a stone replica of who he was. Perhaps we think of a picture, something we don't always like, because a picture is really too close to reality sometimes for us, at least when the picture is of ourselves. But of course, these days, pictures can be doctored, they can be touched up, they can be spliced, I mean, you can't even trust a picture anymore because you don't know what has been done to it. So maybe we immediately think of a mirror, a reflection of who we are that is about as close to reality as it can get, though of course a mirror only reflects the outward appearance. So perhaps a better idea is one of our children. Not that they look exactly like us, they certainly don't, but every parent has had the experience of seeing traits in their children, seeing an image of themselves in their child, whether it is a mannerism or even a thought process or certainly the way they act. But none of this really explains fully what it means to be made in the image of God. 
So sometimes to help us, we need to start with the obvious and in some sense the opposite. So we are not God. I mean, we know that. So to be made in the image of God certainly does not mean that we are little gods. We are like him in certain respects, but there are certainly attributes of God that we cannot replicate. A category theologians call the incommunicable attributes of God, which means they do not communicate to us. Not in, not in understanding, but I simply mean that we don't have those attributes because in those ways, we are not like God. So whatever else conclusions we come to about what it means to be made in the image of God, we are not little gods. So how do we explain this in a positive sense that we are made in the image of God as opposed to every other creature? And to answer that, the, the answer is usually divided along several categories. First of all, there is the personality aspect, which means that we as humans have knowledge, feelings, and a will. And like God, we have these things unlike other creatures. I know you're going to say, no, my dog has a personality. And in some sense, you might be correct. There certainly are aspects of a dog or other animals that are like us in this way, but they don't have knowledge and wills and personalities as we do. I, I know they can have instincts, and I know some dogs can be nice and some dogs can be mean. We were in Muren, Switzerland last week for a couple of days, and we were walking down the main street, and there was a, a little dog set, sitting there waiting on its owner who was in a small grocery store. And Jacob just instinctively stopped and began to bend over to pet the dog. Immediately, the dog started barking very loudly and lunging at him. It was a mean dog. Needless to say, Jacob did not pet him, but went on. And everybody around had a good laugh about it. But animals can't think like we do. Animals can't reason like we do. They don't have these attributes of personality. So that's one of the things that makes us made in the image of God. Secondly, there is the morality factor the freedom we have to make moral choices, and the responsibility that comes with those choices. We talked this past Wednesday night in our Wednesday night Bible study about how God desires for us to be not primarily happy, but God desires for us to primarily be holy and righteous. Those are moral categories that God has called us to Unlike any other creature, your dog is not supposed to be moral. Your dog is not commanded to be righteous, but we are because we are made in the image of God and therefore have the capacity for moral choices. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, there is the spiritual aspect. Man is made in the image of God because we are made to have communion and fellowship with God. And this relationship is intended to be eternal. Again, something no other creature can say. And herein lies our true worth and value. God created us for himself. He loves us and desires to have an intimate relationship with us so that by divine design, that's what we were created to be. And being created in the image of God means there are, there are attributes of God that we can measure or that we can uh, replicate to some degree, though, of course, not to the same degree. These are referred to as the communicable attributes of God. The incommunicable are those attributes that we don't have. 
the communicable attributes are attributes of God that we share, though again in a much lesser way than God himself does, such as love, forgiveness, wisdom, etc. These things are attributes of God that we have in smaller measure. But I need to move on at this point and focus on verse 27, where it says there, we are created in the image of God, and it is repeated, only this time there is a very important addition. Now by divine design, creation has, uh, God has created humanity, and he has divided them into two categories, male and female. Now, we don't have the time to fully discuss uh, what that means uh, in all aspects, but there are several important points I want to make. First, God mentions two genders, male and female. He does not list 16 or more. Furthermore, he creates them male and female, and that is not up to us to decide on the basis of our feelings or desires. Now, I realize that there are some biological anomalies that occur because we live in a fallen world. Anomalies that I neither want to uh, discuss this morning nor do I fully understand. But this point is very clear. He created them male and female. Now, if we had the time to move forward to future chapters in Genesis, we would discover that God has given these genders different roles and responsibilities. But from chapter 1, where we are, the emphasis is simply that male and female are both made in the image of God and share that image equally. There is no distinction in this regard. Which is why Paul in Galatians can say that there is neither male nor female. Paul is not obliterating the gender distinctions. He is not undoing what God did in Genesis. Rather, Paul is simply saying that when it comes to being made in the image of God and when it comes to having a relationship with God through Christ, there are no distinctions. We are all equally worthy in God's sight, and all of us come to God in the same way. I would also like to point out that in spite of multiple avenues of abuse and confusion, Sexuality is, a, is given by God and is a good gift. It was given for our pleasure and for our intimacy with one another. That's why the Bible actually uses the word no when it talks about the sexual activity between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. You need to remember that until recent technology, it took a man and a woman to reproduce. It took a man and a woman to fulfill the, the mandate that is given in this scripture to be fruitful and multiply, which means we need each other to fulfill this mandate, and we need each other for human connection and communion the way God designed us to be. Well, at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, if you're not totally lost, this is an awfully long first point. He is still on his first point. And if there are three points to this sermon, as there usually are, then we are in for a long Sunday morning. Well, the bad news is there are three points to this sermon. The good news is I intentionally spent far longer on the first point than I intend to spend on the next two. The reason being this one first point is not only the foundation for this sermon, it is the foundation for this whole series. We have got to get it in our heads that we were created in the image of God. That is God's divine design for all of us. And if we would understand that, I'm not saying it would solve all of our problems, but I do think it would clear up 
a lot of the confusion that is going on in our world. Well, if all of that is true, and I'm not denying it because I've done such a good job of presenting it, I'm putting words in your mouth now, right? If all of that is true, then why don't I see that divine design, that image bearer, not only in the people I come in contact with, but why don't I see it in myself? Shouldn't there be more of the image of God in the way I think and live? And shouldn't that also be true in the lives of others? Well, that's a good question because we do expect to see more of a resemblance from, of God if we are indeed made in his image. But the reason we don't is found in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to turn there, but we're going to reference it. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man. So number one, we were created in God's image, but number two, that image was marred by Adam's sin. The fall, as we call it theologically, is the account of Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden. And that sin plunged them and us and all of humanity into a life of sin. We have original sin, we call it, because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. And this had such a profound impact upon all of humanity that the image of God in the individual is not seen nearly as much as it ought to. And this does, in fact, explain a lot of the confusion in our world. I'm sure you've had the unfortunate experience of dropping your phone and watching as the glass on that phone shatters doesn't fall out, but it just shatters. And now the images behind that glass, they're still there, but you can't see them nearly as well as you could have when the glass was in working order. And so it is with the image of God in us. Sin has seriously marred and diminished the image of God, making it sometimes very difficult to see or making us wonder if it's there at all. You remember I said one of the aspects of being made in the image of God is that we were made for fellowship and communion with God. And yet what did Adam and Eve do after their sin? When God came to them again in the garden, as no doubt he had done before, this time they hide from God. They run from his presence because sin has marred their relationship with him. And mankind has been doing the same thing ever since. We run from the presence of God. We run from a relationship with God rather than pursue it as we were designed to do. God had warned Adam and Eve that if they'd eaten the forbidden fruit, they would die. They, of course, did not die physically immediately, though that would come later, but in spirit they did die, resulting in their running from the presence of God rather than rejoicing in that presence. And again, that's been happening ever since. Romans chapter 1 explains this very clearly and yet tragically. It is a fitting section of Scripture for our own day. It is an explanation of the confusion around us if we have eyes of faith to see it and to believe it, but most, of course, do not. So they continue in their own self-assessment, unaware that God's revelation says something entirely different, leaving them to choose their own path and their own identity never realizing that God's design is far better. So is there any hope, you ask? 
or is our destiny to pine for our original creation, to merely think back to how we were created by divine design to be made in the image of God, and yet that all of that has been marred by sin? There is hope because that's where the gospel comes in, bringing us a recreation A recreation that's not yet complete and will only be completed in eternity. And so that is where we turn for our last point. The good news of the gospel is that as believers, we have been remade through Christ's sacrifice. We were made or created in the image of God, but that image has been tragically and severely marred by sin. But now in Christ, we have been remade through his sacrifice. And this point, of course, obviously only refers to believers. But again, the invitation is for all. So the idea is not exclusive to believers as anyone can respond in faith. We sometimes talk about sanctification being a process, an ongoing process in our lives whereby we are gradually made to be more like Christ. Another way of saying that is we are being remade into the image of our Savior, This is a progressive work in our lives, meaning it is not instantaneous. That is, the moment you're saved, you're not totally recreated in the image of Christ. That begins the process, and that process will not be complete until eternity. Therefore, even believers don't manifest the image of God like we would like to or like others might expect. But the moment we are saved, we are remade in the image of Christ. We become a new creation or a new creature. And that's actually what we're going to talk about next week. That's a small preview of next week's sermon. That not only are we image bearers, but next week we're going to see that we are new creation. But again, that doesn't mean instantaneous likeness. It is a gradual process of recreation that goes on for the rest of our lives all of which culminates in the next life, in our future state, when we are completely and fully transformed into the image of God that we were created to be. Again, by no means does that mean we will become gods, but we do share in certain attributes of God, and more importantly, we will dwell with God forever, which again is what we were created to do in the first place. That's the true circle of life. We were created in the image of God. That image has been marred by sin. But in Christ, we are continually being remade so that one day we will be completely remade into the image of Christ. And that's the message of the gospel, all of which tells us that God loves us and that we are uh, worthy in his eyes, not because of our accomplishments, not because of our abilities, but because of the grace and mercy of God providing us a way to be remade. And the whole idea screams God's love and desire for a relationship with us. Again, I realize we live in extremely confusing times, but in such times, the gospel offers clarity. You and I were created in the image of God to have fellowship and communion with God. And yet, as we've said, that ideal, that image has been marred by sin. But it doesn't change who we are, essentially, if, especially if we are in Christ. God does not make any mistakes. God did not make a mistake with you. He has not left you to your own imagination. He has not left you to self-declare whatever it is you want to be. Instead, he has created you in his image as the designer 
so that you could find your identity in him. So let me leave you with another passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that assures each and every one of us that we are not a mistake because God doesn't make any. And that includes you. This is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15, where the psalmist writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, we tend to think of the abortion debate when we read those verses, and certainly there is application there. But that is not what David, the author of this psalm, was thinking about when he wrote those words. Ultimately, he is stating a broader principle, that God knew what he was doing when he created each one of us, and that he makes no mistakes. And that should clear up the confusion, though, of course, I'm not naive enough to believe it actually will. Plenty of people will conclude that they know better, that their own self-identification is more authentic or real than what we've been talking about this morning. But I prefer to rest in the divine design of the creator God who made us rather than personal declarations. And I hope you will agree with me and that you will find peace in what God says about you that you are an image bearer of the God who created you. And that's far better than any kind of thing you can come up with with your own imagination. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you saw fit to create us in your own image. And while we don't fully understand that, we rejoice in it, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made And that you not only created us, but you created us for a reason, and that was to have a a relationship with you, something you've made possible in spite of sin through the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would find our identity not in what the world calls us, not in what we declare ourselves to be, but we would find our identity in what you've said about us, that by divine design, We are image bearers of Almighty God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.